good morning. My name is Angel Fall, and you've just tuned in to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. The title of today's show is Killing Me Softly, When Guns and Diseases Take Aim. And I want to thank uh, Scotty Reed, my sound engineer and the founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. And um, I am going to ask him to come on just a little bit uh, before the station ID and tell us about the Black Talk Radio Project. So um, if you've been following our show, the focus of our show is reducing gun violence using public health measures. And of course, the current uh, pandemic that we're in now is um, it would be irresponsible not to address it in some way. So I will be addressing it um, kind of tangentially for the first part of the show, and in the towards the end of the show, I will review some basic epidemiological principles for prevention of transmission and uh, so that people can reduce the, um, the burden of the disease in their area by protecting themselves. So some of you who are listening might be wondering, you know, is there a relationship between, um, how is there a relationship between guns and diseases? And the most salient example would be there is a relationship between war and infectious disease. Of course, wars in modern day use guns, and wars going back to the 1700s use, use guns. But wars create a breakdown in the infrastructure, breakdown in people's nutrition. Um, wars also increase uh, anxiety and depression and uh, emotional trauma in people. Wars create family tension, even if you or your family members are not actually soldiers. So there are a couple of social historic things that explain some of this. But I want to delve into a scholar's research on the relationship between war and infectious disease. Her name is Marie A. Conley, and she joined the World Health Organization in 1995 and has worked in emergency situations in 12 countries. And... Um, the co-author of her article is David Hyman, and he is the executive, at the writing of this article, he was the executive director of communicable diseases, and he's worked with the World Health Organization since 1988. And if you're paying attention to the pandemic, you do see a statement from the World Health Organization. And I believe there's an Ethiopian, a doctor from Ethiopia, who is uh, running it right now. So, I'm going to uh, review some of the conflicts that were in Africa in recent times and their relationship to infectious disease. And I'm quoting from the article, The Lancet, Deadly Comrades, War and Infectious Disease. During conflict, populations are often suddenly displaced and relocated to temporary settlement camps. Crude mortality rates over 60 times higher than baseline rates have been recorded after such displacement. To reduce human death and suffering, several targeted prevention and control measures, examples, measles vaccinations, provision of safe water, need to be implemented. Where these interventions have not been agreed and implemented, there have been many preventable deaths. For instance, the outbreak of cholera and dysentery in Goma, former Zaire, in um, June of 1994, killed more than 12,000 Rwanda refugees in just three weeks. However, 
the context of conflict situations has changed over the past decade. Camp scenarios are no longer the norm since populations are often dispersed among local communities. In many conflict situations, ongoing war has led to chronic emergencies affecting entire countries with long rehabilitation phases. Examples, Afghanistan, Angola, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Very often populations dependent in the long term on non-government organizations for the most basic health services. In Afghanistan, over 70% of healthcare services are provided by such organizations. Rebuilding the public health infrastructure in these countries might seem, might be seen as a priority, but it rarely receives the long-term investment required from the international community. Prevention and control programs deteriorate in war-torn areas with a consequent increase in vector-borne diseases such as malaria. I'm going to step away here. Um, an animal or an insect can be a vector or a host. Um, diseases such as malaria, trypanosomiasis, which is known as sleeping sickness, yellow fever, Lassa fever, tuberculosis, AIDS, and vaccine-preventable diseases such as measles. In Afghanistan, malaria was well controlled before civil strife began in 1979. However, in the past 20 years since, the disease has resurged with 2.3 million cases per year, an increasing proportion of which is due to the more severe Plasmodium falciparum. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, trypanosomiasis has dramatically resurged as a direct consequence of the conflict. In 1930, more than 33,000 cases were recorded, falling to fewer than 1,000 cases in 1959 after active case finding and treatment. Then conflicts in the 1960s led to collapse of the control program in 2001. The number of cases was estimated at 40,000 with a prevalence of more than 70% in some villages. The high excess mortality and morbidity from infectious disease in a war-affected population results from the lack of availability of even the most basic health protection and care. If the humanitarian imperative is not sufficient to convince the international community that these health needs to be addressed, then there are several others that illustrate the importance of controlling infectious disease in these countries. First, globalization and increased travel have been previously remote threats relevant to health security worldwide. In 2001, more than half of outbreaks of international importance occurred in conflict zones. International humanitarian workers, if they are not adequately protected, may be infected while working in these situations. Delays in detection, response, and containment of academics in countries affected by conflict are a constant threat to surrounding countries and to countries worldwide. So if you are an astute listener, you can read between the lines here and see that much of what the authors are writing about is applicable in today's world. There is not, in, in today's world with coronavirus, there is not, no war is going on in the United States, no war, technic, no war is going on in the United States or Italy right now. There's no real conflict in disputed borders with different fractions and factions fighting. However, we are seeing many of the things that the authors mentioned. 
And we're about six minutes into Victims 2 Victorious. Here on the Internet, you can follow us by going to the Lancet, L-A-N-C-E-T. We're looking at an article written by World Health Organization uh, professionals, and it's called Deadly Comrades, War and Infectious Disease. And in this show, we're taking a look at the relationship between war and infectious disease. And it's not irrelevant to what's going on now. Um, It certainly is relevant, and I want you to see and hear that the disease containment, the contact tracing, um, underlying health issues, poor infrastructure, marginalized populations, they are all present in the current, current dynamic. And, of course, the underlying tenant of the show is why are African-American males the most likely to be victims of homicide in the United States of America? The title of today's show is Killing Me Softly, When Guns and Diseases Take Aim. And we're reading from an article called Deadly Comrades, War and Infectious Disease. I'm going to read a little bit more from that article. We're going to segue into what is a bioterrorist act. There's a lot of um, chatter on social media about what is a bioterrorist act, what is a pandemic. So I am going to define a bioterrorist act a little bit later. Returning to the article, uh, the World Health Organization professionals write, to strengthen implementation of infectious disease control interventions in conflict-affected countries, WHO has established a program of communicable diseases in complex emergencies. This program focuses on providing technical and operational support to partners, setting standards, developing tools, providing technical coordination at the field level, and holding training courses for non-governmental organizations, UN agencies, and national health workers. There is a need for a renewed international commitment to basic health protection and care of war-affected populations and recognition of the importance of infectious disease as major killers. There's also a need to better address all people affected by conflict with a long-term perspective. Not only refugees and internationally displaced people, the progress being made in peace building and reconstruction in Afghanistan, Angola, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and East Timor often offers hope for the future. It is crucial that the international community seize the opportunity to assist governments and partners in these countries to rebuild their healthcare systems by focusing assistance on delivery of key interventions for infectious disease, preventable disease, and death could be greatly reduced while putting in place the health systems necessary for these and other disease interventions in the long term. And of course that connects to today's news news all about the pandemic from around the world and what the United States States does not have. So many times in the United States, we pat ourselves on the back for being a Western country, you know, having brought many technologies into the world, but the fact that there are not enough hospital beds or ventilators in a time like this, uh, this is addressed in the article, and we're grappling with that as we speak. So what is biological warfare? I'm reading from Wikipedia. Biological warfare, also known as germ warfare, is the use of biological toxins or infectious agents such as bacteria, virus, 
insects, and fungi with the intent to kill or incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of war. Biological weapons, often termed bioweapons or biological threat agents, are living organisms or replicating entities. And the, Wikipedia makes a distinction. I used to work in a laboratory a long time ago, and one of the things that you learn in a laboratory when you work with the pathogens underneath the microscope and the petri dishes is that a virus is technically not alive. I just want to throw that out there. It's technically not alive. And um, I welcome your comments on the Black Talk Radio Network site. Uh, my, my show, Victim to Victorious, and all the shows have a tab where you can leave a comment. So... A, um, bacteria is actually a living organism, but viruses technically are not. Um, it's breaking it down. The word entomological means insect, and that is a subtype of war. Certainly, um, you know, those of you who read the Bible know about the locusts, for instance, in the bio. Uh, in the Bible, biological warfare is distinct from nuclear warfare and chemical warfare, which together with biological warfare make of NB, NBC, the military initialism for nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare using weapons of mass destruction. If you're following me online, you can go to Wikipedia and find this article. Biological weapons may be employed in various ways to gain a strategic or tactical advantage over the enemy, either by threats or by actual deployments. Like some chemical weapons, biological weapons may also be used as area denial weapons. These agents may be lethal or non-lethal and may be targeted against a single individual, a group of people, or even an entire population. I just want to let that sink in. They may be developed, acquired, stockpiled, or deployed by nation states or by non-national groups. In the latter case, or if a nation state uses it clandestinely, it may also be considered bioterrorism. Biological warfare, warfare and chemical warfare overlap to an extent as the use of toxins produced by some living organisms is considered under the provisions of both the Biological Weapon Convention and the Chemical Weapons Convention. Toxins and psychochemical weapons are often referred to as mid-spectrum agents. Unlike bioweapons, these mid-spectrum agents do not reproduce in their host and are typically characterized by shorter incubation periods. And, of course, viruses and bacteria do reproduce in the host. The use of biological weapons is prohibited under customary international humanitarian law. Previous article from the World Health Organization used that language, humanitarian law. This is also... Um, prohibited by a variety of international treaties. The use of biological agents in an armed conflict is a war crime. Now, the Wikipedia article looks at biological warfare going back to antiquity and the Middle Ages. Going back to antiquity and the Middle Ages. What I want to do, um, let me just, um, this is me speaking. What I want to do is to take a look at a specific event in the United States of America, and it is disputed. Um, this is when the Union Army um, is dealing with the Indian uh, Relocation Act. So there is a controversy, controversy 
um, with uh, not only in the United States with Indians, but also Native Americans in Canada, there's a controversy as to whether or not the Native Americans were given smallpox-infested blankets during the periods of time when they're relocating them to uh, a reservation. So I'm going to read the first article. And, of course, it would be in the context of biological warfare because, for instance, when Geronimo is captured, he's captured as an enemy of the United States of America, and he is he and the same Indians who tracked him as scouts for the Union Army are all considered traitors and combatant, enemy combatants, and they're sent to a, a holding camp in Florida. This article that I'm reading first, because I think it's good if you're a listener to understand that some things are disputed. So this article is by Thomas Brown, and many times on my show I tell you, do try to contact people who I mentioned, people who do the research, professors who teach on the subject, public health advocates, your senators, your representatives. Let them know, A, you've heard uh, Angel Fall and Victims to Victorious, and you have a concern about the public issue, public health issue, and you want to do something about it. So this article is written by Thomas Brown. Um, his email address is brown, the letter F, at hal.lamar.edu. And the article is called, Did the U.S. Army Dispute, Distribute Smallpox Blankets to Indians, Fabrications and Falsification in Ward, Church, Ward Churchill's Genocide Rhetoric? He is disputing it, but what I like, though, is I remember Churchill if you follow history, was actually part Native American. I believe his, his, his grandmother or mother might have been a uh, Oneida, but you can leave me a comment if, on the website if I got that wrong. But the use of genocide here is very important because we just heard the definition of biological warfare. You're already using guns on people. Now you want to have a way of killing people who are not necessarily combatants, meaning you want to get rid of the population, you want to get rid of the women who are, who are um, experiencing fecundity and fertility, and you want to get, the, get rid of the children. So in this article, um, he disputes this, but he at least describes what occurred. War Churchill tells a shocking tale of war crimes committed by the U.S. Army at Fort Clark against the Mandan Indians in 1837. Fort Clark, Clark stood perched on a windswept bluff overlooking the Missouri River, in what is today North Dakota. Churchill reports that in early 1837, the commander of Fort Clark ordered a boatload of blankets shipped from a military smallpox infirmary in St. Louis. When the shipment arrived at Fort Clark on June 20th, U.S. Army officers requested a parley with Mandan Indians who lived next to the fort. At the parley, Army officers distributed the smallpox-infested blankets as gifts. When the Indians began to show signs of the illness, U.S. Army doctors did not impose quarantine, but instead told the Indians to scatter so that the disease would become more widespread and kill more Indians. Meanwhile, the Ford author the Fort authorities hoarded smallpox vaccine in their storeroom instead of, instead of using it to inoculate the Indians. So this, this is, um, and I said this is Ward Churchill, I'm sorry. This is not Winston Churchill, but Winston Churchill himself really was related to um, Oneida Indians. The um, 
article that Mr. Brown wrote or Dr. Brown wrote takes into dispute the account of a man named Ward Churchill. So here is his dispute. Every aspect of Churchill's tale is fabricated between 1994 and 2003. Ward Churchill published at least six different, different versions of this accusation against the U.S. Army. While the Mandans and other Indians the upper plains did suffer horribly from a smallpox epidemic in 1837, Churchill presents no evidence whatsoever to indicate that the infection was anything but accidental or that the U.S. Army was in any way involved. Fort Clark was Fort Clark was a privately owned fur trading post, not a military base, base, and there were no U.S. troops in the vicinity. The closest U.S. military unit was an 800-mile march away at Fort Leavenworth. Again, I'm quoting the article. In telling his fantastic tale, Churchill has fabricated incidents that never occurred at individuals who never existed. Churchill falsified the sources that he cited in support of his tale and repeatedly concealed evidence in his, in his possession that dis, this disconfirms these events. And this, um, this website, um, this website is also called, this website is called qod.lib.umich.edu. So he's disputing, Thomas Brown is disputing it, and here is what he believes is the real account. But as I'm reading this, I want, I want the listeners to know that the Native Americans were disease naive to all the diseases that the European settlers brought. So let's just say that the smallpox infested blankets were not considered to be necessarily dangerous because at this time, understanding how pathogens work and how, um, how things are contagious, it's not very clear in this point in America's medical history. However, Knowing that the Indians were disease naive, the question would be, when does common sense set in? If you know the infirmary has, has blankets or people who died from this deadly disease, then why would you give it to people who have, no, have never had the disease? That's a really good question if you're listening and you're using reasoning. So going back to Thomas Brown's article, he describes it this way. The high plain smallpox epidemic of 1837 has been analyzed by numerous historians. None of the previous histories have indicated any U.S. Army presence in the vicinity, much less any military involvement in genocide. None has mentioned a word about a boatload of blankets shipped from a military smallpox infirmary in St. Louis. None have mentioned any medical personnel as ever being present in the vicinity, much less deliberately violating quarantine by incending infected Indians out among the healthy population. Historians agree that smallpox was brought to the High Plains in 1837 aboard the steamboat St. Peter, which was owned by a fur trading company as it made annual voyage up the Missouri River from St. Louis, delivering goods to the company trading posts along the way. The disease followed in the steamboat's wake, making an appearance among the southernmost tribes among the river long before it spread to the Mandans at Fort Clark and tribes north. Now here he gives a whole listing of um, people who have written about this and I, and I accept direct messages on Twitter 
um, um, on-air angel, and I can send you some of the sources. He continues, many eyewitness accounts of the 1837 epidemic have survived. None mentioned any U.S. Army presence in the vicinity of Fort Clark. Only two government employees were on board the St. Peter's as it approached the upper Missouri. Joshua Pilcher was the Indian Bureau sub-agent to the Sioux, Cheyenne, and Ponca. Pitcher left the boat at Fort Kiwa, where he was posted before the boat arrived at Fort Clark. Pitcher's letters to his superior, Superintendent Wilbur Clark, William Clark, indicate that the disease was carried by a number of sick passengers on the board the St. Peter's, on board the St. Peter's. As Pilcher began to realize the magnitude of the disease, he took steps to quarantine as many of the Indian charges as possible. Pilcher wrote Clark in June 1837 and again in July, warning of the smallpox outbreak. Pilcher advocated to Clark that an extended vaccination program should be initiated to stem the epidemic. Pilcher noted of his vaccination plan that it is a very delicate experiment among these, those wild Indians, I'm quoting the quote, because death from any other cause while under the influence of vaccination would be attributed to that. Still, he told Clark, if furnished with the means, I will cheerfully risk an experiment which may preserve the lives of 15 or 20,000 Indians. William Fulkerson was the other Indian Bureau sub-agent on board. Under Fulkerson's purview were the Upper Missouri tribes. From the Mandans at Fort Clark to Point North, to Point North, Fulkerson was the only federal employee who rode the steamboat all the way up and back down the river. And the only one to meet the Mandans at Fort Clark. There is no evidence at all that Fulkerson distributed any blankets to Indians. Fulkerson's letters to Superintendent William Clark, both before and after the trip, complained that the government had not allocated funds for the annual annuity gifts to the Fulkerson's tribe. Clark's accounting records bear this out. So some of you may not know, I happen to know because I have Native American cards, and I've disclosed that I'm African American and Latino, but um, my, my family, my father's family has the Native American cards. What does that mean? If someone in your family was registered as an Indian, they have an ID card and they have a ration, and rations were given out to you around these forts, and they're usually manned by the Union Army. So the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, of course, is already in place when the smallpox vaccination, when their versions of vaccinations are supposed to be passed out, and the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs is already in place when the smallpox outbreak occurs among the Indians. But what we do need to look at is the Indians are indeed, um, they're disease naive to this particular disease. So I'm trying to tie all of this together under the umbrella of an unprecedented um, outbreak or pandemic here in the United States. But I want the listeners to know that there is a history between war and infectious disease. And in this history, a certain group of people, when there is an economic conflict, a border conflict, a political ideological conflict, when certain groups of these are faced with this and their society is disrupted, the level of, of infectious disease goes up. And this has a history 
going back to the Middle Ages. Um, we've been on the air now for um, a little less than a half hour. Um, in a few minutes, we will break for the station ID, and I do want um, Scotty to come on and tell us all about his Black Talk Radio Network and how it started and how you can support it. If you just tuned in, I'm Angel Fall, and this is Victims to Victorious, and the short version of the show is Killing Me Softly. And what we're doing is we're looking at the relationship between guns, war, infectious disease, and marginalized populations. So here in the United States of America, you know, the the most notorious, I don't like the word notorious, the most obvious, the most talked about marginalized population is African American because we came here as slaves and we continue to suffer um, or what the, the epidemiologists often call the overburden of a disease. And then we're overrepresented. And one of the basic tenets of the show is we're overrepresented and homicide deaths. So one of the things I want to do before the break is I want to take a look at the distribution of the 10 leading causes of death among black U.S. residents. I'm going to read them in the few minutes we have before the station ID, but I really want, uh, I really want the listeners to notice what is missing, and we're going to address that later. So um, the whole population, if you take out, I'm going to read the whole population, if you take out African-American males between 18 and 40, you're going to get a different statistic on how, how many of them died through gunshot wounds. That is the number one cause of death for that population. But for the whole population, that's called couch data, by the way. But for the whole population, I'm going to read the causes. And this is from Statista. You follow me online uh, on the computer, Statista.com. The article is called Distribution of the Ten Leading Causes of Death among black U.S. residents in 2017. Remember the data that's presented in these articles has to have been collected a couple years before, then published, so it's easily two to three years old in terms of our calendar dates here here in 2020. The first number one cause of uh, death for African Americans is diseases of the heart. The second one is malignant neoplasms, cancer, in other words, Accident, unintentional injuries, and here they're separating out. They're separating out, separating out accidents from homicide. Accidental injuries is the third cause of death. Cerebrovascular disease, also known as stroke, fourth cause. Diabetes mellitus, fifth. One, two, three, four, five, sorry, six. Chronic lower respiratory disease, seven. Homicide, eight. Nephritis, which would be kidney disease, nine. Alzheimer's disease and septicemia. <coughs> and of course, people get septicemia in the hospital. Notice what is missing? Infectious disease is not among the 10 leading causes of death among black U.S. residents. And right now in the United States of America, uh, there are very few African-American deaths attributed to the coronavirus. So. It is time for the station ID. Uh, I'm going to throw it over to Scotty Reed, and hopefully he will uh, come on and tell us a little bit about the Black Talk uh, Radio Network and the Black Talk Radio Media Project. Uh, yes, Angel. Um, 
I have some um, breaking news, actually, as it relates to the Black Talk Media Project and the Black Talk Radio Network. Um, totally by accident, I was looking for something else, and I came across um, this this uh, media company's website. It's called Feedspot. Uh, you might be able to find it by going to Feedspot.com. Uh, Feedspot is a media marketing company that's based in India that seeks to uh, partner advertisers with media creators. Now, they focus on all kind of different internet-based media, whether it's video or whether it's audio. So a couple of years ago, they started... Um, you know, these categories for different types of media based on who they were targeting. So they had a section called black for black, um, uh, black radio, uh, basically, or black podcasting. And so in 2019, we grabbed as a network, uh, black talk radio network, the number one spot. And then I found out yesterday that on the 15th of this month, um, we grabbed the top spot again. Um, so that's two years running that Black Talk Radio Network has been ranked by uh, outside independent uh, media company as being the number one platform for black podcasts and digital radio. So, you know, I shared share in that award with every podcaster slash broadcaster on this network. Now, here's the thing, though. This is very this is very troubling, and those who have been listening to my podcast, Black Talk Radio News, know I have been uh, consistently bringing this up. Now, like I mentioned last night, we don't attract a lot of advertisers. Um, that's for that's for two reasons, okay? A lot of your corporate corporations, we talk trash about on this network, and that's just the truth, you know. We talk trash about corporations, how they don't pay their taxes, and, and the harmful products that they make and, and being distributed, you know, to the black community and, and other communities as well. Um, we did have one uh, corporation, a bank, Wells Fargo, reached out to me last year um, through one of their publicists seeking to establish a relationship. Well, I know Wells Fargo was the number one investor in, in private prisons and also underwriting oh, wow. other prisons. And so I told I told the publicist in, in the email, um, get back to me when y'all divest from private prisons. Okay. Wow. And actually they ended up divesting along with a couple of other major banks did divest from, from private prisons. But I also know there's been a problem with their mortgages and discrimination. Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. for those that don't know, gold was founded in the 1850s. And they did profit mm -hmm. from plantation slavery back then. And so here we are in the 21st century, you know, they finally decide um, to divest themselves from prison slavery. So I'm not interested in any kind of taking any kind of money or advertisement from people like that. OK, so that's why you don't see a lot of corporate advertisement. I have had other uh, people with gambling sites and, and things of that nature um, that have wanted to take out ads. But I, I, I won't accept that. Because I think that uh, gambling can become a disease for so many people. And I don't want to promote harmful activity or harmful products to our listeners' um, audience or those who visit the platform. 
Um, and then lastly, you know, Michael Bloomberg campaign reached out to me last month and was asking me, well, oh, wow. how, how much to place ads on, on Black Talk Radio Network for Mr. Bloomberg's campaign? And I thought about it a second because I had already heard about how he was paying people thousands of dollars a month, you know, to speak positively about him. Um, I, I thought about it a second, but then I was like, no, because I don't support Bloomberg and the things he has done in the past. And, you know, I support the policy. So you would be talking about stop and frisk. Stop and frisk. Um, the other things we heard about, you know, his sexism and, and sexual misconduct and, and harassment on, you know, within his company. And, you know, so I didn't I turned the money down. Other people say, oh, you should have took the money. But then, you know, what kind of person would I be? What what kind of damage would that do to my credibility when for years we've talked? about stopping frisk and how harmful it was to black and brown, you know, people, uh, especially boys from 16 to 24 in New York City. So we basically survived 100%, I would say, off of donations. Now, we are a nonprofit, so these are tax-deductible donations for those that that is important to. Now, we have tens of thousands, well, anywhere from twenty to 30,000 visitors a month who come to the website. Now, we do distribute the podcast outside of our website through other platforms, like three or four other major platforms. So, you know, we got a boatload of people who are downloading podcasts from those platforms that are produced here on the network. Now, all of this cost us money and bandwidth and, and and you know, without getting too technical, then we have those who listen to the radio stream. That's separate than the podcast. That's a separate server we have to maintain. And, you know, as long as I was receiving donations on an uh, average of, of 800 to 1000 a month, I would have been able to, you know, make the payments. Now, granted, we don't have any employees. I don't even pay myself a salary. You say, well, how do you make it? Well, I'm on disability. Okay, um, uh, but I run this nonprofit, and you ask Angel why I started it. Well, it's because I started listening to talk radio and could find very little of talk radio that was speaking to the needs of black people outside of, you know, a few syndicated voices like Al Sharpton, um, you know, the other mm -hmm. morning show, Steve Harvey, and these people aren't very serious, talking about very serious, you know, topics and issues that we talk about on the network so i i saw that there was a space to be filled and then so i filled that space with black talk radio network and then you know malcolm x inspired me by tell by informing me through video of course that um a, a video archive of course uh, he's not alive um, that media is the most powerful entity on the face of the planet, and it controls the minds of the masses. It makes I the innocent agree. look guilty and the guilty look innocent. So, you know, my wow. vision was to create localized black talk radio uh, networks all over the country, wherever, you know, there's a, 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 a considerable amount, at least a 30% population of black people. Um, of course, I can't find the funding. Um, I did apply for funding from Open Society, that's George Soros, um, um, and, and look for other grants, but they don't want to fund this type of media again because we are unapologetically black. We do not follow a mainstream agenda, 
and you know um, we allow black people to express themselves within reason you know so it is very important that people make those donations in the past couple of months we have fallen um, to about only around five to six hundred a month and then that means I have to make up the difference I'm already working with no salary okay um, so we need people to step up and, and if you think about it Angel that's only a hundred people giving ten dollars a month, you know, to meet that one thousand minimum threshold I need to make, so I don't have to come out my pocket outside of the, you know, the time and and, and energy I put into this network. So that's how we got started, and the only way we are going to be sustained, we're in our twelfth year. Somebody told me after ten years, you're an institution. Okay, well, if we want to keep this institution of people who are consuming the media, we need y'all to step up. And again, this is tax deductible donations that you can make. Thanks, Angel. Well, Scotty, before you before you go back to uh, editing and and uh, running the show from the board, can you give the listeners a place where they can go? and make the donation. Sure, they can uh, just go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll see, you know, the uh, donate buttons uh, all over the site. You'll see different ones. You'll see one that has like, um, um, I forget what it says right now, but it had a different credit cards. And also it's through PayPal, but you don't have to have a PayPal account. Um, It'll accept um, donations from any credit card or debit card. You don't have to set up a PayPal account. And then for those who are are weary about making online donations, you can send a check or money order to Black Talk Media Project. Don't put some one one or two people put it in my name. Um, but, you know, I live in a small town. Bank knows me. I just deposit it into, you know, the right account. But don't send it in my name. Put Black Talk Media Project. We are registered nonprofit. The P.O. Box 65, Mount Holly, North Carolina, 2812. Wait a minute. 2812. No, 282. Oh, man. I didn't forgot my doggone. Uh, 281. Two zero. I'm sorry. Two eight one two zero. So let me do that again. Black Talk Media Project, P.O. Box sixty five, Mount Holly, North Carolina. Two eight one two zero dash zero zero six five. I want the listeners to know that they can show their appreciation. And one thing that you mentioned about nonprofit is when it's nonprofit and you aren't tied down with corporate sponsors you are able to have more freedom of expression. Uh, that's all there is to it. And then, <clears throat> and you mentioned other black shows. When you listen to Steve Harvey, when you listen to, um, uh, what's his name, Smiley? <coughs> Tom, Ricky Tom Smiley. Joyner, Ricky uh, Smiley. Uh, um, yeah, it's only a few. The Breakfast Club. Exactly. Now, they may mention, I'm sure they're talking about coronavirus, and but they are focused on the 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 um the celebrity piece <coughs> the social networking piece and the advocacy for the problems of the black and brown people who are overrepresented as we just mentioned in you know in diabetes in homicides in poverty in incarceration rates they don't spend a lot of time on it because they're interested in 
ratings based on how entertaining the show is. They're not, they're not, their show's rating is not based on how informative the show is. So this is why I want the listeners to understand what you're doing and why I was so happy to do this type of a format because if you listen to, to me, for instance, on Victor to Victorious, if you really want to know about how to help yourself as a black or brown person, I'm giving you the names of people who study our problems. I'm giving out their Twitter feeds, their email address. I'm reading the articles that they've written. I'm telling you I can send you the articles because in that entertainment-only piece, the severity of our problems is glossed over. And that's not what I do. I want to make sure people understand who's getting shot, who's getting locked up, who's getting raped, who's getting killed. I want them to understand exactly who they are. And the tone is different for me uh, on your show so that people, you know, I, I heard a wonderful Ricky uh, Smiley, because, you know, he has a lot of skits in his shows about um, some young teenage boys who went out robbing and stealing. And it was a really good joke, and I laughed. But the truth is, there really are people, like he described, who are either in the cemetery or incarcerated right now. And it really isn't funny, but if you think about that, someone's son, that someone's grandson, that someone's nephew. So um, Al Sharpton does address a lot of the political side of it. But we need more advocacy to reduce gun violence, and we need more advocacy in terms of our health care inequities. How can those be changed? So I um, would like for you to give the mailing address for old school people who use checks, and the website for clicking on the donation button one more time. We have about uh, about 10 minutes left on the show. Yeah, we got about 15 minutes uh, based off 15? of the okay. clock. Yeah, again, blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll see the donate buttons. No matter what page you land on, it'll be on the right side near the top um, on the sidebar. And then you'll also see, um, you know, it uh, individually posted on the different podcasts. Not all of them, but some of them, the ones that I engineer. And you can uh, mail a check or money order made out to Black Talk Media Project, P.O. Box 65, Mount Holly, North Carolina, 28120-0065. Again, that is Black Talk Media Project, P.O. Box 65, Mount Holly, North Carolina, 28120-0065. Thank you so much, Scotty, for telling us about the, the um, founding of the Black Talk Radio Network, reminding the listeners of our focus, and showing them how they can support us. So I'm going to use the last um, 15 minutes-ish to um, talk, to tie some of my themes together. So we began the show, um, the short version of the show was Killing Me Softly, and we've been looking at the relationship between the way uh, war-torn environments, of course guns are used in war-torn environments, and the relationship to infectious disease. I've also been widening the circle out to look at um, what kinds of, uh, what are the causes of death in the United States save an epidemic? This is the first time in a decade that we've seen these kind of numbers, and everyone believes in the modern times this probably shouldn't be happening. So what is the failure of it? But aside from that, 
I want to go back to the theme. What's the relationship between guns and an epidemic? So um, one of the things that is very clear, and I'm going to read from an article. This um, article actually came, this article is actually from CNN. The article is called Gun Sales Surge as Coronavirus Pandemic Spreads. This was published at 8.02 a.m. March 20th. I'm going to repeat the title. Gun sales surge as coronavirus pandemic spreads. The beginning of the show, I told you there was a relationship between war, outbreak of war, and displacement of populations. But now we're just looking at the virus itself, the virus itself spurring gun sales. So let's see what CNN says. And for any of the articles that I read or any of the data that I present, if you're having trouble finding it, you can send me a direct message on Twitter, on Air Angel, and I will get it to you. Reading from the article, gun sellers across the United States are reporting major spikes in firearm and bullet purchases as the coronavirus spreads across the country. Pictures of long lines outside gun stores in California, Oklahoma, and elsewhere have gone viral on social media. Stepping away from the article, other viral pictures are, you know, pictures of Walmart shelves. If you're in New England, um, pictures of Stop and Shop shelves. That's a tongue twister. My son works at Stop and Shop in New England. He said they're not restocking. They remind people at the cash register that there is a limit, but the shelves are barren. Pictures of long lines outside gun stores, California, Oklahoma, and elsewhere have gone viral on social media. Rereading that again since I stepped aside and gave my comment. The ammunition website, ammo.com, that's amazing, there's a website called ammo.com, said it has recorded an unprecedented surge in bullet sales over the last three weeks. The article was written on March 20th at 8 o'clock in the morning. Administrators for this site, which ships ammunition to all but four states across the nation. That's important for our listeners to know. We've been talking about how you can get guns in the mail. The UPS driver can bring you a gun. Monday night showed a 77 increase in website visits between February 20th and March 15th. This article is extremely up-to-date. Those visits led to a 222% 222% increase in transactions over the same period which compared to the first three weeks in February. Again, this article came out hours before we recorded our show. It's called Gun Sales Surge as Coronavirus Pandemic Spreads. Revenue has increased, according to ammo.com, 309%. I'm pausing intentionally. Revenue has increased 309% according to the site, which said coronavirus fears are fueling the sales surge. So looking at the article on the computer, thinking about what your own experience has been going to Walmart or Costco or Sam's Club or your local grocery chain, why are people stockpiling guns? Because people believe you're going to have to fight for resources. That's why. The world has never seen anything like this, and people want to make sure they're prepared for whatever lies ahead. 
whether the food be shortages, government shutdown, or worse. A spokesperson for animal.com said in an emailed statement to the author of the CNN article, when everything around you is uncertain, having supply of ammunition can make your customers safer. Between 2016 and 2018, after the election of Donald Trump, the gun industry experienced a decline in firearm sales, dubbed the Trump slump, which insiders say is typical when the Second Amendment-friendly Republican controls the White House and Capitol Hill. But month-to-month sales rose steadily in 2019, a year after Democrats won back the House and presidential candidates like Vito O'Rourke proposed a mandatory gun buyback program to seize semi-automatic long guns such as the AR-15. This year, the coronavirus has been an unanticipated boon to the gun industry. All the anecdotal reports are sales have already kicked up higher here than the last week or two. Gun industry analyst Robert Southwick, founder of the marketing research firm Southwick Associates, Inc., told CNN Business. Whenever there's a period of uncertainty, 911, the stock market crash of 87, firearm sales go up. Federal law requires anyone purchasing a gun from a licensed firearm seller in the United States to pass a criminal background check, which is submitted to the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS. The Bureau declined to confirm whether or not it has seen a coronavirus-fueled rise in background checks. But its latest available figures show a 73% rise in background checks in February when compared to the same month a year ago. Mark Oliva, that might be my accent, Director of Public Affairs of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, industry routinely speaks with gun merchants across the United States. He said the rise in gun sales in nations is nationwide and that the coronavirus has sparked a pattern of panic buying and hoarding firearms and ammunition. Leaving the article on the computer and talking to you directly. Isn't that amazing that people are hoarding guns, ammunition, and toilet paper? I think everybody's a little bit concerned that they're still buying while they can, and it's available, he said. Texas leads the nation in ammo.com sales per capita, according to the website, which noted states and regions where the number of confirmed coronavirus cases are the highest have experienced the largest gun and ammo sales spike. Leaving the article on the computer again, those of you who have been following me for since last year, this is called a direct relationship. Medical researchers, public health advocates, sociologists will describe this as a direct relationship. In other words, when one goes up, the other one goes up. Angel, a I have so- a question. Yes. I have a question about what's driving this, especially the toilet paper, because this morning they found a a tractor trailer full of toilet paper that had been stolen. And I have, (laughs) I'm serious, for real. And I've seen videos of people fighting over toilet paper and not food, but toilet paper. 
as if toilet paper is the only way that you can take care of your hygienic needs, you know. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's convenient, and we're used to, you know, taking care of things in the bathroom with toilet paper, but it is not essential. Um, what were people using before toilet paper? I think that the the hoarding of toilet paper and the ammunition and buying guns, I think that's media-driven. And when I say media-driven, what do I mean? Take, for example, uh, a program, a television program, where I, yeah, it's on TV still, um, or cable, uh, Supernatural, about two brothers who go around fighting demons, killing demons, and stuff like that. And then, you know, they had several episodes where people contract virus. There was a virus called the Cro- Croatian or the uh, Croatoa virus. And and one of the characters was te- when they went to the future and saw, you know, uh, how society had just broken down. And, and then this one guy was saying, you, when you go back, stock up on toilet paper. And then when you when you look at, you know, like The Walking Dead and, and other movies and, and tele- TV shows where, you know, you have a breakdown of society, I think, you know, that being programmed into our psyche and that's how a lot of people being are reacting in the way they are. Well, you know, pa- what panic buying, as you described it, is exactly that. And when you're panicked, you're not always rational. And I'm going to use some self-disclosure here. I know how to use newspaper for those personal hygiene issue, issues. I know how to use a wet cloth, okay? And uh, people around the, around the world use leaves, sand even. Ever see a bird take a bath in sand or dirt? So <coughs> I really don't understand it. Um, the toilet paper I truly don't understand, but the ammunition purchases that are constituting the panic buying they make sense because people think they're going to have to pull a gun on someone to get some toilet paper, pull a gun on someone to get some milk. In other words, some of these people are expecting to rob their neighbors for what they want, clearly. And other people believe that people are going to come into their house and um, try to take things out. People are getting ready for a war, which is how I began the show, the relationship between war and conflicts and people's, people's conflicts that turn to insurgents and the relationship to infectious disease. So in some ways, we're already there. California is, is on, the whole state is on lock now, right now. So the marshal, the, um, the, the federal, not the federal marshals, the National Guards have been called in. So are the National Guard people going to take shots at folks who want to go out and get toilet paper? I mean, this is real, Scotty, and this is what I want the listeners to know. Even though here in America we're experiencing some of this for the first time, America does not have clean hands for germ warfare or biological terrorism. If you believe they gave Native Americans smallpox-infested blankets, but there are other smaller examples. of. um, So right now resources are limited, and many people, like you said, have seen the Hunger Games, and they've seen The Walking Dead, and they're playing it out in real life, and in their panic, in real life, they're blurring the line. I truly don't understand the toilet paper thing, Scotty. I know we're out of time, um, and I, I want to thank uh, uh, the founder of Black Talk Radio Network and the sound engineer for all the informative shows, for giving us something to think about. 
Um, I just want to give this one fact because I am broadcasting from Ohio today. In the summer, we will be broadcasting from um, Chicago over the summer. But right now in Ohio, this is the CNN article, an open carry state, moderately priced handguns like the Taurus P2 111 G2C seem to be the weapons of choice, according to Daryl Uppel, a licensed gun dealer based in the rural town of Astabula, which is 56 miles northeast of Cleveland. The distributors are sold out of that model. The distributors are sold out of that model. And in New York, which had the highest number of coronavirus cases, the state of New York, where counties require residents to obtain a license to carry a handgun, the most popular firearm purchase has been shotguns, according to Tim Lynn, who they interviewed for the article. So I just want the listeners to think about that, think about Scotty's comments. Leave your comment. Um, there is a, um, you can click on the box underneath my show, Victims to Victorious. The article we were just reading from, it's called Gun Sales Surge as Coronavirus Pandemic Spreads. Uh, it was posted by CNN at 8.02 in the morning. I am Angel Fall, and I want to thank you for listening to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network.